now the greatest speaker, orator, preacher this side of the Michigan-Ohio line, live from Ypsilanti, it's Emily Swan! The pressure of that kind of intro! It's good to see your face, Paul. It makes me want to skip the sermon and drive over to the church so that I can hang out with you. But I, but I think that, that might pose a little bit of a problem. Oh. Well, if you guys were with us last Sunday, you know, we had a guest speaker who was who is here, Ana Jelsi Velasco Sanchez. And she delivered this really beautiful sermon, sort of meditation on a moment that, um, on interaction between Peter and Jesus. And I, I think that's worth saying that that was worth a listen if you didn't get a chance to catch that last week. But in her talk, Ana Jelsi, she mentioned that she's a Muharista theologian. And then she commented a little bit later on our Muharista use of the word kingdom rather than kingdom. I'm gonna put that in the chat so that you guys, we use kingdom rather than kingdom, usually when we do the Lord's Prayer. And since she mentioned it, and since we haven't done a whole lot more than just sort of a passing teaching on why we use kingdom rather than kingdom, I thought maybe that would be a helpful thing for us to talk about this morning. So it's gonna be a little bit of a denser uh, sermon and I'm gonna be using the chat box quite a bit so I'll be doing that for like terms that I think are helpful for you. So one of the first things that she said when she introduced herself was that she is a Muharista theologian. Um, I, I just put Muharista theology there in the chat box. And what that is, is feminist Latinx theology. Latinx, let me put that there. So Latinx is just a way, it's like a gender neutral way of saying Latina or Latino. So she's a feminist Latinx theology. And if you're newer to Blue Ocean, which I know a few of you on here are, we talk quite a lot about what lenses we use to interpret the Bible and how it's helpful for us to understand the Bible from the perspectives of people who haven't traditionally held as much power in their societies or their churches or their seminaries. Because people who are on the underside of power can often see things or make association, associations that other people can't. And so it gives us a more complete perspective. You know, as, as Ken pointed out, the uh, older straight white guys have been dominating a lot of church theology and sermonizing for many, many years. And it's not that that's bad, it's just incomplete. And so we try and look at several different voices. So when we talk about feminist theology, let me put this into the chat. That looks at the Bible through the eyes of women. Womanist theology looks at the Bible through the eyes of black women, specifically. And Muharista theology looks at the Bible through the eyes of Latinx women. Right, so these are just different terms that you might hear. And so the, the theologian that I had read that I think um, Ana Chelsea recognized was a woman named Ada Maria Isasi Diaz. I put that there in the bottom. And she's a Muharista theologian. I think she's Cuban-American. And she's the first person from whom I learned the term kingdom. And I don't think she actually came up with the term. I remember reading once that she had learned it from a Franciscan nun. But she heard it, and she's the one that it kind of caught her imagination, and she's done the most development of it. And so she's written about a couple of reasons why she likes using it more than kingdom. And the first one is really simple. It's that king is a patriarchal term. And the suffix dumb, I'll put it there in the chat, it means to conquer. 
So she says, you know, to speak of a kingdom in English means to speak of like a male conquering. And she says that that's not really what we're trying to communicate when we're talking about the kingdom of God. You know, that kingdom means something closer to like the takeover of kinship. I'm going to put that in there because that's worth repeating. Kingdom means something closer to the takeover of kinship, right? So it has more of a sense of mutuality in our relationships, right? So that's the first reason. The second reason I think takes a little more unpacking because that, that term kingdom of God that we, that we see so often, it's mostly in the New Testament. I want to say Jesus used it, I think, 37 times the last time I, I had looked at a count. It's a metaphor that Jesus is using. Right? So you'll often hear Jesus saying things like, the kingdom of God is near at hand, or the kingdom of God is like. Right? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a bit of yeast that a woman rolls into dough. And so when Jesus is using that term, he's invoking this metaphor to try and describe like, what the ways of God look like in our world. So he's trying to teach us about what God is like. And in Jesus's context, his people were ruled over by the Roman Empire. Right? So they had Roman uh, soldiers and overseers and governors who taxed them and who harassed them. You know, when we, when we hear people of color in the U.S. talking about feeling harassed by the police, Jesus knew this kind of harassment. So the Roman soldiers in his day um, would very often ask Jewish people to just carry their packs when they were walking along the road, which eventually did land, and there, there was a law that was created that they could only ask Jewish people to carry their packs one mile. And you see this in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, if someone asks you to carry their pack for a mile, he says, carry it a second mile. He's not telling them to be suckers. He's trying to tell them, like, force them to break the law in oppressing you. It's a little bit of a more, um, yeah, what would, what would you call it? Nonviolent, uh, what's the term? I can't even think of it. Nonviolent strategy um, that he's using. Nonviolent snark, nice. Yeah, that's it exactly. So Jesus knew what it was to be harassed. And when his people would resist that, the Romans would sometimes do things like slaughter entire villages. And I know it was during the time when his parents would have been children up in the Galilee, the Romans came and just crucified hundreds of people, right? So this entire kingdom that ruled in Jesus's day was a kingdom that was a kingdom of domination and warfare and injustice. And so when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, it was supposed to stand in stark contrast to that kind of treatment. Right, so the kingdom that Jesus spoke of was a place where justice and peace and inclusion and humanization were central, right? It was this kingdom that wasn't achieved through power and domination and harassment, but through love and humility. And so Ada Maria Asasi Diaz, that, that theologian I was reading, she suggests that this metaphor of kingdom of God, that that worked in first century Palestine when it was used in contrast with the Roman Empire. Right? So it worked in the mouths of people who were oppressed, not the people doing the oppressing. But she says it's lost its revolutionary power today because the church has been so co-opted by the great empires. And that started with the colonial empires, um, the British and the French and the Spanish and the Dutch, etc., who would use the authority and the religious zeal that they could inspire 
through sacred language and ritual, they used those things to do what Rome did, right? To conquer and to dominate people. Only they did so now in the name of the kingdom of God. And the American empire does the same. And so here I'm gonna put a quote in the chat box by Ada Maria. She says, historically the church has become more and more a tool in the hands of dominant groups in society at the service of its world order, instead of proclaiming the kingdom of God as a different world order, right? So kingdom of God has been weaponized by people to subdue others. And so expanding the kingdom of God has become this justification for Christians to look and act more like the Romans would have done in Jesus's time, rather than like the humble Jesus following people. And I think we see this going on in our country right now, right? This is not irrelevant. We have a lot of people claiming Christianity who are seeking power and governing authority to advance their own interpretation of the Bible in the name of expanding the kingdom of God and at the expense of minority people. And that includes me as a queer woman. And so sometimes um, different phrases that we use or words can get so muddied that they just, they really can't be reclaimed. And I, I would say that that's true about the term evangelical. Right? There are still, even today, people trying to say that that word doesn't have to be associated with fundamentalism or far-right politics. Um, I actually thought it was probably too far gone about 15 years ago. But for sure, at this point, I don't think there's any coming back from the cultural baggage that's been attached to that word. And so Asasi Diaz is saying kingdom of God might also be like that. It might be a little too muddied at this point. She says, let me put this in the chat. The kingdom of God can't be described both as the pursuit of power and influence and the laying down of power and embrace of the marginalized. And, oh, I see what Fayonette put, term Christian can't be reclaimed. I think that there's an argument for that as well. Um, so she's saying it's a little too muddy. So she, she suggests that kingdom of God might be a better metaphor or at least a starting place for those of us who are trying to maintain a witness of Christianity that's like separate from that domineering form that's brought so much pain to the world. And the term kingdom conjures a picture of family, right? When she's teaching in Spanish, she says she doesn't use kingdom, but she uses, I'm gonna put it in here and forgive me because Spanish is not one of the languages I learned, la familia de Dios, or the family of God is how she says it in Spanish. And then in English, she uses kingdom. But I, I think I actually like kin, at least in our culture and our language, as a more apt metaphor than family, because I think, at least in English, we think of family as applying to like other humans and maybe like our pets, right? And that, that could be chosen family, um, could be your pet rats. I know like the Nelsons have pet rats and your cats and your dogs. But kinship in English can also describe our relationship with the world as well. As where we usually don't describe nature or the world as our family, but we might describe like our kinship with nature. And so I think it's a metaphor that, that conveys this sort of holistic connection. And from the beginning of when we started our church, like five or six years ago, we talked about how we exist to cultivate connection, right, between God and ourselves and others and the world around us. And so it's this sense of oneness with the creation um, that we're trying to evoke, that we see in our origin myth in Genesis. And so we're reminding ourselves that we're trying to treat, uh, treat all of creation with dignity and care. And so I think having the environment as part of the kingdom is a really helpful way of thinking about it. 
And Sassi Diaz isn't the only voice who has questioned um, whether this phrase kingdom of God is helpful. Um, it was a few years before I read her book. I actually read these similar sentiments in another book. They just, they didn't have offer a, um, a suggestion for what to replace it with. I'm going to put this down in the chat because this was a really great book too, if you're into reading theology. A Native American Theology by Clara Sue Kidwell, Homer Moley, and George Tink Tinker. George Tinker is one of my, my favorite theologians. Um, and so I remember reading it. I remember reading this book because it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone question using terms like kingdom of God or Lord. And so it really struck me, it kind of took me aback. And I wanted to share in full what they said about Lord, just so you, this is a little bit um, theologic speak, but I want you to be able to see it. They wrote, there was no analog in North American indigenous societies for the relationship of power and disparity, which is usually signified by the word Lord. To the contrary, North American cultures and social structures were fundamentally marked by their egalitarian nature. So egalitarian means um, more like uh, equality between the genders. They're saying it was a little less hierarchical and there was more um, male-female equality. And then they go on, they say, even a so-called chief typically had very limited authority and it very much depended on the person's charismatic stature within the community and their skill at achieving consensus. So the American Indian experiential knowledge of lordship only begins with the conquest and colonization of our nations at the onslaught of the European invasion. What Indians know about lords and lordship even today has more to do with the hierarchies of power resulting from colonization. So to call upon Jesus as Lord is to concede the colonial reality of a new hierarchical social structure. It's to concede the conquest as final and to become complicit in the ongoing genocidal death of our peoples. Right? So in other words, the hierarchical nature of a kingdom with like titles like king and Lord, it just didn't make sense in a lot of indigenous American cultures. And they're saying like what, what they experienced of people who used such terms and imposed that kind of power structure um, was colonizers using it to make people considered not Christian to suffer. And a friend of mine from India, he was a dear friend of mine, he told me something similar about his tribe. He's actually from India. He's from, um, I'll put it in here. He's from one of the Naga tribes of Northeast India. And he said that his tribe makes all of its decisions by consensus, that there's like a council of elders who help guide decision processes, but the hierarchy of the Christian tradition is still really foreign to his people. And it's more associated with like the British colonizers of India. And he's a Christian. And he said his, his people made the decision to become Christian as a tribe by consensus. But the hierarchical terms of this sort of Western Christianity are not that helpful to them. These terms that, we, that came from the Roman Empire ultimately. So on the one hand, we've got people like Asasi Diaz and the Mujerista theologians telling us that the kingdom of God has lost its original meaning and it's really too hard to reclaim at this point because Christianity has been co-opted by empire one too many times. And on the other hand, we've got these indigenous theologians, Kidwell, Noli, and Tinker, 
for saying that the metaphor doesn't even work in their context. And it's really just been associated with harm that's been done to their people. And that they were better off without that metaphor imposed on their culture. And so it was after reading their book, I remember I started trying to avoid saying kingdom of God, which is a really hard thing to do when you're teaching the New Testament. Um, so then I would just try and when I used it, try to just give a lot of explanation to make sure that there was some context to it. Um, I remember hearing Ken use God's good realm or the good realm of God, which I really liked. And I think that's what we ended up using in the book that we wrote together. But kingdom is starting to catch on in different segments of American Christianity. I actually heard that term at the TFAM conference that we were at by at least one speaker. Um, there's a New Testament professor at Duke, Christina Cleveland, who uses it, and some other black theologians that I've read. And the words that we use to describe God and what God is doing in the world matter. And I think sometimes it can feel a little bit overwhelming to try and keep up with like changes in terms, right? And like what's okay to say and what's not okay to say. And that's a critique that I hear a lot about progressives. But the reason that we care so much about words is because we care about how power is used, right? So people who are like my age and younger, I would say mid forties and younger, we grew up in a world that was influenced by postmodernism. Right? There was a really big break between like how my parents were educated and how my generation was educated. The main contribution of postmodern thinking gives us the, the ability to better understand how power works. Like that's how I was trained as a history major in college and undergrad. I was just trained to ask questions about power. Who has the power? How does power get used? How does it get wielded? Who doesn't have power and why not? And one of the often unseen ways that power works is through language and images. Right? That's why there's minority people groups in different cultures. They care about what words are used to describe them and what images people see on them of them, like in movies and in TV shows. Um, I actually spent two semesters studying propaganda when I was an undergrad. One was Maoist propaganda and one was like early 20th century British propaganda because propagandists know that words and images shape collective behavior. And I think as Christians, we need to be wise to this, right? We have to be careful how we use words and images and especially words and images that are 2000 years old and have perhaps lost their cultural context or been used in different ways that have been harmful, right? So when Latinx Christians and indigenous American Christians and black Christians are saying that this widespread use of kingdom of God has been used by people hurting them rather than championing justice for them as Jesus was using it. I think it's my job as a white American pastor to listen to that, right? And it's our job as a community to adapt um, accordingly to that. And I think we give each other a lot of grace when we aren't sure what the best terms are to use, right? Terms change all the time and it can sometimes make us feel inadequate or um, I don't like to use the word dumb, but it can make us feel like we don't know what we're doing. And I don't want you, any of you to ever feel like you can't say something because you're not sure like what the most acceptable word is to use because we're called to not judge each other or to have any contempt toward each other, right? And I will never be offended if any of you guys wanted to ask me like, what's the best word to use for queer people or anything else you can always ask. Um, this is a community where we want to be able to learn together, right? So that we can better love each other because that's the ultimate goal, right? It's to love one another. 
I was really struck by that when Lydia wrote this, read the scripture this morning, right? It was love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm. And so what it is, it's just listening to the harm done and trying to um, help with the healing of that. So I know that was a little bit thicker. It was a little um, less Bible centered. So I thought maybe for the meditation, we would meditate on a little bit of scripture that Jesus um, from what Jesus said here in Matthew 13. I'm going to put it into the chat and I'll read it to you. And then I, I want to ask us a couple of questions. So Jesus told his disciples another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. And he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And I thought we could spend just a couple of minutes in quiet reflection, thinking about like, what does this tell us about how the kingdom of God works? These pictures that Jesus has used, seeds and yeast. How do those work? And what, what are those like and what could that tell us? So let's just take a couple of minutes. You can close your eyes if you want or you don't have to. And let's just sort of think about those images that he uses and then I'll I'll close us out with a couple of thoughts. I actually just had a, a new to me thought as I was thinking about the seed and the yeast. And I was thinking about how, um, you know, yeast and dough make space. Then it adds air. It just creates space. And this mustard seed, when Jesus talks about it, he's talking about it growing up to become a tree so that birds can come, right? It's also making space. So that's this kind of widening um, of space and embrace, but it's done through like the most humble of means. 
And I think that's really beautiful. So come Lord Jesus.